Mosaic at WDW. You guys doing okay tonight? Yes, it is great to be uh, together worshiping Jesus, um, declaring uh, who he is and the goodness uh, of our God um, through times of worship and uh, being able to open up God's word uh, together um, wherever it is that you hail from. Um, it's unlikely that it's actually Orlando. Anyone actually native? Uh, oh, look at you. Wow. A couple. Oh, I see that hand. I see that hand. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, depending on where you hail from, uh, I don't know. Um, but whether you have been in Orlando for years and years and years, or, uh, you were in your first college program, uh, man, it is so good to know that the body of Christ comes together all over the world uh, each Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of the dead, uh, Jesus Christ, that he has uh, been crucified for our sins, uh, but he is not dead, that his resurrection uh, is true and it's everlasting and it changes actually everything. (laughs) It is the most important thing that's ever happened and ever will happen. And all of human history revolves around that reality, that, that, that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, uh, a sinless life, a perfectly obedient life uh, to the Father. He uh, was uh, crucified on the cross, uh, not because of his sin, but for our sin uh, and resurrected from the dead. And it changes literally everything. And actually, as we open up uh, God's word tonight, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. We are in First Timothy chapter 4. Uh, together. If you're using one of the uh, beautiful blue mosaic Bibles that have been provided, uh, you'll find that on page 1095. Um, Otherwise, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. Um, If you happen to be using a smart device, you want to look it up in the English standard version. It'll make it easy for you to follow along. Otherwise, just whatever Bible you brought is great. Um, And before we get into chapter 4 tonight, I want to just pop up a couple of verses um, to where we left off last week. Uh, Because where I started tonight... Uh, as we acknowledge what we come together to do each week uh, as part of uh, uh, what it means to worship Jesus each Sunday, uh, that this truth, this gospel, uh, Paul has very clearly and very beautifully, actually very poetically outlined for us. In fact, I told my wife uh, today, as I was kind of preparing for our time together tonight, that if I were to get a tattoo, now I have zero tattoos, right? I'm not like a tattoo guy. Clearly, I'm not cool enough for tattoos. I got this shirt at Costco, okay? So let's be honest. But if I were to get a tattoo, this little paragraph might be what I would get, just like on my forearm or something like that. But, but here's what Paul says, and this is this beautiful uh, poem about Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16, uh, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And he talks about Jesus here. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Uh, this is the story of our Savior, Jesus, that the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, uh, scripture teaches that he was the lamb, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that, that the second person of the Godhead, uh, the creator and the sustainer of all things, he took on frail human flesh to dwell among us. That's what Paul means when he says he was manifested in the flesh. 
Uh, He was vindicated by the spirit. The spirit of God came down at his baptism as a dove. The father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Listen to him, heed his words. The spirit descends on him as uh, like a dove and empowered Jesus uh, to do ministry uh, as God, but also the God man. Um, and, And he was seen by angels. The whole cosmos looked in on what Jesus was doing for the human race. Uh, that the good news of who he is has proclaimed among the nations, that it's not just for one people group or one certain type of person or one certain type of uh, uh, station in society, but it is for the nations, for all people everywhere, that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed among the nations. And that as a result of that proclamation, because the gospel, when it's proclaimed, it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes Paul says it's believed on in the world. And then Jesus is then taken up in glory. And now he is seated. Uh, what are we just saying? And now he uh, stands in victory, right? Uh, that, that sin's curse, uh, it's broken. It's lost its grip on us because Jesus sits right now, is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. And that is the good news of the gospel. And one day he's coming back again. He's coming back again. And we as followers of Jesus, we orient our lives around this truth, around this person, around this story, the truest, greatest, most beautiful story that has ever been proclaimed in the world is the story of Jesus. And we live in Orlando, Florida. We are uh, akin to hearing great stories, right? Beautiful stories, gripping stories, heart-moving stories, right? Uh, of course, Walt Disney bringing uh, his amazing storytelling ability to bear on uh, the human race. Uh, we, we are beneficiaries of that in Orlando, Florida. Uh, even Universal Studios, not too bad at telling some stories, right? Uh, SeaWorld, telling stories about the, the beauty of creation. I mean, we live in an environment where telling stories is baked into our culture and baked into our reality. And so it should become uh, uh, natural for us to uh, experience and understand that the world that we live in is really just a giant story that's being told. And the reality is that we get to be, as followers of Jesus, a part of proclaiming and living out and demonstrating the effect of the most important story that's ever been told, the truest story that's ever been told, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who he is. And Paul is writing this letter, 1 Timothy, which we're walking through together as a church, uh, to a context where a a young pastor named Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus. And this is a very key church. It's a very important church. Uh, It is a church that is uh, in in a cultural environment where there's a lot of stories being told about spirituality. A lot of stories being told about what the the gods and the goddesses were doing. There there was a lot of ideology about Rome. There was all of this that was going on uh, in this cultural context and in this climate. And Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus uh, through Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, I want to charge you to be true to the gospel. I want to charge you to be true to the greatest story that has ever, ever been told. And I want you to keep the purity of that story true. Don't allow anything to infiltrate the story of the gospel that clouds it or that distorts it or that obscures it in any way from people being able to hear it. Because this story is the, what? The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's a, it's a very vital and important story. Stories matter. Now, Beauty and the Beast is one of my favorite movies ever right? 
And uh, I am, the first time, I'll never forget, first time I'm sitting through the Beauty and the Beast show at Hollywood Studios, uh, the narrator says, basically, he says, and through a series of very strange events, right? It's like one thing led to another. I'm like, dude, you just skipped a lot of this story, right? And as a storyteller, it is your job to tell the story from beginning to end so that I don't miss a really important part of the story. And that always bothered me, just as a Beauty and the Beast fan, you know what I mean? And Paul is saying that the story of the gospel, it's so important, it's so vital, it matters so much that we can't miss any of it. Because if we miss any of it or we add anything to it, it begins to distort the truth of it. And then people will be led astray. And the stakes are too high. They're too high. They're not just temporary stakes. They're eternal. And so Paul is saying this matters more than anything else in the world. And he's charging Timothy through this letter to preach and teach sound doctrine. We live in a world today that uh, kind of thinks about truth as a very moldable, malleable thing, right? It's very relative. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And as long as my truth doesn't step on your toes, you're okay with it, right? That's the cultural climate we live in. That's the world that we live in. And what Paul is saying is actually, no, the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it matters more than any other uh, truism or belief or ideology or philosophy that may exist on earth because it's the good news and the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So Paul begins this train of thought that he's about to, to, to launch into in chapter four with the clarity of who Jesus is and the clarity of the gospel. Because what has happened culturally, we know through studying this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, is that some false teachers had emerged in in the city of Ephesus, in the town of Ephesus, and even began to teach people who were connected to or within the church in Ephesus. And these false teachers, and and you have to understand a little bit about Greco-Roman culture, ancient Roman culture, is that when these philosophers would come through town, if they had something compelling to say, they could gain a lot of wealth. As a result of that, there was a lot of power that could be tied uh, to their teaching. If people, if they could gain a following and people would follow them, it was pretty advantageous during this time to gain a following. You can think about people like Socrates and Plato. These were philosophers that had great followings and benefactors who paid them to great money to write down and to speak about and to teach about their philosophies and beliefs. And what had happened in Ephesus is that these false teachers were arising and were impacting the church. And through the study of this letter, we can kind of find hints throughout uh, this letter about the types of teaching that they were talking about. Uh, early in the letter, we, we learned that they were, uh, you know, uh, thinking about different uh, genealogies or uh, this genre in scripture, this idea of myths, this, uh, this idea of how the world began. And they're, they're kind of, uh, uh, you know, using their, their best guesswork uh, to, to, to piece certain things together and kind of create this secret knowledge system. And, and, and they're, they're really developing this following who, uh, if, if they began to buy into these teachings, uh, would, would increase their level of power and their level of wealth. And Paul is saying, no, 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 this has to stop. This has to stop because it's obscuring the beauty of the gospel. And we're going to find as we jump into chapter four tonight, a little bit more about what these false teachers were saying, but I think what's more important, uh, well, I think what's important to think about before we get into what exactly the false teachers were saying is we have to understand who these false teachers were and what they were about. And more importantly than that 
And this is what Paul does in chapter 4 that is unique to the rest of this letter, is Paul gives us a glimpse in chapter 4 of what is behind these false teachers. So he's going to touch on the teaching itself. He's going to touch on the people delivering the teaching, the false teachers themselves. And then he's going to touch on what is behind their false teaching. And so we're going to jump into that uh, together tonight. Now, the reason why it's important for us to begin kind of with all that context uh, is that if you just jump into the Bible, sometimes I don't know how your, uh, your spiritual journey has gone. I don't know if you've ever tried this. I have. It doesn't work well. But if you kind of close your eyes, open to the Bible and point at something and start reading it, it may not make the most sense. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever tried anything that is like that at all? It's okay. It's okay. Many of us have done it. It's okay. But the reality is, is that if that is your approach to scripture, oftentimes scripture will confuse you. And it's a big, big book. It's an important book to understand. It's an important book because it is actually what the word of God says about itself. It's breathed out by God. It's useful for correcting and teaching and training uh, for righteousness. All of these things uh, matter a lot for us to understand. And so if we just jump into 1 Timothy chapter 4 without a little bit of context, what we're going to walk into tonight is going to sound just kind of weird, right? But with that context in mind, let's begin 1 Timothy chapter 4 together. So now Paul has just in chapter 3 reminded us of who Jesus is and what he's done in that beautiful poem. And then he says this, now, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Okay, so let's start with that. He's going to lay out a problem. He's going to say, now the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God has revealed to us, has already expressly said to us that in later times, like through, through the history of the church, through uh, the, the progression of the reality of the gospel going out. So he's just talked about this gospel that's proclaimed in the world, right? And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But then he kind of takes a turn and says, even though that's true, there are going to be people who are going to be led astray, right? What does he say? He expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves. Is that ring any bells to you guys or any Acts 2.42? So, so you get a glimpse into the early church, Acts 2.42. What do they do? They devote themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, which is scripture, right? To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they devote themselves to, to biblical teaching. They devote themselves to the word of God. They devote themselves to the community of God so that they can know what the spirit of God is saying about how they should live and what they should do. And, 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 and that is actually what we're called to do as Christians. That's why we gather together every Sunday. <laughs> we devote ourselves together to the teaching of the word of God, to fellowship with one another, to sharing and breaking bread together. At Mosaic, we do donuts, right? There's bread and donuts. Is that true? Yeah, for sure, right? It's breaking bread. It's biblical. Donuts are biblical. You heard it here, folks. To, to prayer, to... What's that? Uh, all right, all right. I tried, I tried, I tried. But yeah, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. But these people, what does Paul say? They will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, not to the apostles' teaching, but to what? To deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Whew. This is pretty serious. 
Now, remember, I, I, when we started, I said that, that Paul is not just going to talk about the teaching itself or the, the types of people doing the teaching, but he's going to talk about the motivations behind this teaching. And what Paul is doing is he's saying that, listen, this false teaching, the kind of teaching that distorts, obscures, and dilutes the gospel from what it truly is, it's not just like, you know, uh, something you should kind of shy away from or be somewhat careful of. It's not something you should be like somewhat concerned about. It's not something that you should just kind of say, uh, shrug a shoulder at and say, you know, it, it is what it is, right? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It's, that's not the posture that we ought to have towards this because what Paul is saying is that the false teaching that is diluting, obscuring, and distorting the gospel is actually motivated by demons. That's a big deal. Now, I don't know what your, uh, you know, experience is with spirituality and, and uh, Christianity for that matter. But I can tell you kind of no matter really where you're at from a spirituality perspective, most people think demons are bad, right? And the truth is demons are bad. Now in this cultural context, if you look up uh, kind of how they thought about the demonic world, um, you know, the Ephesians, they thought about a pantheon of gods, right? These are uh, a Roman people with Greek background. So there's this pantheon of gods and uh, this idea of demons that we think about is kind of like you got angels and you've got demons. We've got a pretty basic understanding of cosmology. But the, in a Greco-Roman context, their understanding of cosmology was a little bit broader than that. And so they would think about spirits um, in different ways. And they would, they would think maybe there are some that are kind of good spirits, some that are kind of bad spirits, and some kind of in between. And what Paul is saying is actually, no, uh, this false teaching that is coming through these people is motivated from the pit of hell itself. That Satan's plan, Satan's ploy, Satan's desire for humanity is that our eyes would be taken off of Jesus and onto other things. Satan has a desire for us and it is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the way that he does that is he takes our eyes off of our good shepherd, Jesus. And as a roaring, roaring lion, Jesus says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He wants to separate the sheep off, the flock off, one by one by one and pick us off. And what Paul is saying is that this teaching leads people to what? Depart from the faith. So the stakes are high. What Paul is saying is the gospel matters. So Timothy, know that the spirit is telling you that this is going to happen and we have to be on our guard against these false teachings. Verse two, he begins to talk a little bit about the types of people that would do these types of teachings. So where's the motivation from? Where's it? What's, what's kind of behind this? Angels or demons? Demons, not good motivation. And who are these types of people? Verse two. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Sound like good folk? No, these are liars. They have no conscience. They're seared. I don't know about you. My wife, um, she cannot drink hot coffee. She just can't do it. Every morning I make her coffee. It's one of the only good things I do as a husband. I'm like really good at making coffee. I'm bad at everything else. But in the first, I start off every day, right? And then it's downhill from there, right? But every morning I make my wife coffee 
And when, I, when it comes out of the pot, it's piping hot. And I always cool it down with a little bit of water, two ounces of water. Because if not, my wife has no sipping ability. Like, it's just like, she just can't do it, right? So when she drinks coffee, it's like gulp, gulp city. And if she drinks coffee and I don't add that water, she's going to burn herself. So whenever I travel, I always remind her, listen, here's how you make the coffee and make sure to add two ounces of cold refrigerator water so that you can drink it without burning your tongue. And when you burn your tongue, what happens? Your taste buds are seared. (laughs) It's scalding hot liquid and it sears your taste buds and your taste buds become numb and you're not able to, to experience the flavors that your tongue is designed to be able to experience. And what Paul is saying is that these people, they have a conscience, but because they are liars, because they are not sincere people, they have gone so far with this teaching so that they can gain power and authority and wealth that their consciences are seared and they don't even care about what it is that they're doing and the reality that they are leading people away from the only one who can save them. So the types of people Paul is warning Timothy against for the church in Ephesus are the types of people who are leading people astray by demon-influenced teaching uh, that have no conscience, they're liars, and they have no sincerity. Now, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, if you guys have been here through uh, through this book, as Danny's been preaching, we've heard that the aim of our charge is... Come on now, you're crushing it. Let's, let's go. Verse Timothy 1.5, Paul says the aim of our charge is love, but he, he doesn't stop there. He says what? That comes from a good conscience with a pure heart. And what Paul is saying is that these people, the aim of their charge is, the, the motivation is not love. They're not leading people to life, light, and freedom. They're not leading people to the gospel. They're leading people astray and their consciences are seared. Now, Paul continues, and he gives us a little bit of an insight of the types of teaching that they are bringing to the table that is leading people astray. Verse three, he says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, it's interesting, you know, with marriage, um, you know, in our cultural context, we, uh, we elevate like the idea of love a whole lot more than we elevate the idea of marriage in our cultural context, because there's so much that's baked into that. But in Paul's day, there were people who would take this idea of marriage and they would take it to an extreme in one way or another. Paul addresses this uh, in first Corinthians chapter seven. Um, The church in Corinth had over elevated marriage. They had, uh, they had said that, man, if you're not married, you're not complete. Uh, If you're not married, you're not whole. If you're not married, there's something wrong with you, something broken about you, that that, uh, you are not in obedience to God. And and in the Corinthian church, they had over-elevated marriage. And Paul gives corrective teaching and underscores the value, hear this, underscores the value of singleness. Saying that in singleness, we have an opportunity to live our lives focused on the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus and bringing people to the kingdom of God that we cannot achieve as married people because our focuses become divided. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So the Corinthian teaching, the pendulum had swung saying, marriage is everything. And Paul's like, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, look in chapter three, verse 16, says nothing about people getting married. (laughs) 
right? It's a side note. It's, it's, it's a part of life. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Marriage is a gift and a blessing. But guess what? So is singleness. It's a gift and it's a blessing. And for many years as a single man, I thought about my singleness and wrestled through the reality of its blessings and the difficulties that came with that. Now as a married person, I wrestle through the reality of the blessings of marriage and also the difficulties that come with that, right? Because we're imperfect people and what, what completes us is not our singleness or our marriage status. What actually completes us is Jesus. And that's it. There's nothing else. If you're putting your hope in some other person, some fairy tale reality to complete you someday, know that that will fall woefully short of your hopes and dreams. Woefully short. But Jesus is far better, far better than a spouse. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. And here in 1 Timothy, he's also saying, now let's not let the pendulum swing the other way and start forbidding marriage, right? Because some people would say, oh, well, if you're really spiritual, you wouldn't need marriage. If you're really spiritual, you would live your life as a single person devoted to Jesus and not needing any spouse or kids or that family life. You should just be pursuing after Jesus. And, and if, you know, if uh, whatever comes or whoever God brings into your life, just ignore it because singleness is best. And Paul's saying, well, wait a second, that's actually not true either. The fact is that God gifts us and calls us into the life that he has crafted for us. The fact is in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, Paul says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance or beforehand that we should walk in them. So for some of us, God's gonna call us into singleness and it is going to be a beautiful gift and opportunity with hardship that Jesus is gonna need to get us through. And for some of us, God is going to call us to marriage, which is a beautiful gift with hardship and things that Jesus is going to need to get us through. And what Paul is saying is that these people are harping on these supplemental elements of life and getting our eyes focused off of Jesus and onto other things like marriage, for an example. When the gospel is not about whether or not we end up with a spouse, the gospel is about Jesus being our groom and we being his bride. So he starts by saying, look, here, they're forbidding marriage. And not only are they doing that, they are requiring abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there's this kind of spiritual movement that has really uh, been a part of even the ancient Jewish tradition before Christianity emerged, um, before Jesus came, lived, died, and resurrected, uh, called asceticism. And asceticism is just basically this idea that if I can take all pleasures out of my life, if I can take all enjoyment of physical things away from myself, then I can fully be spiritual. I can actually be the person God has made me to be from a spiritual perspective. And, and there are all of these ascetic pra practices uh, that, that tend to become very harsh, right? Now we talk about here at Mosaic quite a bit about the disciplines of the faith or rhythms of intimacy with Jesus. And those things do include things like fasting, solitude, silence, where for a time we say, in order to focus more on Jesus, I'm going to remove X, Y, Z distraction, pleasure, or an enjoyment so that I can put my attention and focus more squarely on Jesus for a time, right? That's part of 
normal Christian rhythms and, and disciplines. In fact, we see that in the life and in the ministry of Jesus, right? We, we see him getting off and being alone and being intimate with the father and praying. And, 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 and we see him uh, say things like, hey, these, this demon that is being cast out or needs to be cast out can only come out through prayer and fasting, right? Uh, you know, G- Jesus talked about, hey, when you fast, do it this way, that way, and the other way. Don't do it like this, like the pagans, right? So, so these spiritual disciplines are celebrated in the gospel and celebrated through scripture and through the teachings of scripture. And yet they can also take an extreme nature where our righteousness gets tied or our, our worth in, in terms of our relationship with God gets tied with the practice of these things. And we're withholding and we're forbidding things that God did not intend to be withheld or for, forbidden, right? And what Paul is saying is like, hey, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. In fact, God created everything and these things are good and we should enjoy the things that are on earth with thanksgiving and within reason, right? Some people are like, that's my verse for marijuana legalization right there. Everything God made is good. Let's go for it. And that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying just because it's on earth, you should consume it. That's not what he's saying. You know, uh, fossil fuels, God made fossil fuels. I don't see those people drinking gasoline. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Legalized drinking gasoline. Nobody says that ever, right? What Paul is saying here is that when we attach our spirituality, when we attach our relationship with God with things like, well, I'm going to stay single forever and I'm not going to enjoy certain foods, that it obscures the beauty of the gospel, which says, I was never good enough in the first place. So Jesus came, lived a sinless life, so that by faith in him, through his death and resurrection, I could have salvation and eternal life. That is what the gospel is. It doesn't have anything to do with how uh, I, I end up with my life in terms of marriage or singleness. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, the, the types of fasting that I do or the things that I withhold. It has to do with faith in Jesus alone. And as he changes me from the inside out, my life begins to look more and more like Jesus' life does. So I begin to say no to sin and I say yes to Jesus. But it's not through my own works and mustering up my own courage and having my own self-discipline that I become the person that God has called me to be. No, it's the spirit of God working within me to make me more like Jesus. And what Paul is saying is these people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, they're obscuring the gospel for everything is created by God and it is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is, is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What Paul is saying in this passage is, listen, the gospel is true. The gospel is good. The gospel is beautiful. It is, when I say gospel, all I mean is it's the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's his life, his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his impending return. That is the beauty of the gospel. And when we add anything to it or we take away anything from it, it obscures and dilutes the good news of who Jesus is. And we don't wanna do that. We wanna be people who are faithful to the gospel so that we are not led astray, but instead we're led to follow after the only one who can save and to point other people to him and to nothing else, to nothing else. And, you know, as we sit here 2,000 years later, after this this letter has been written, after Paul wrote to Timothy about Ephesus, 
we have to ask ourselves the question, how do these things apply in our context, right? Because I don't know about you, maybe you do, but I don't know about you. It's unlikely that as followers of Jesus, we're also listening to podcasts about forbidding marriage and not eating certain foods, right? If you are listening to those podcasts or watching those YouTube videos, we can have a chat. That's fine. Um, and, and, you know, what he's not saying, maybe a little caveat, he's not saying that, like, if you choose to be a vegetarian, that's the wrong thing. That, that's not what we're talking about. What Paul is talking about is connecting those ideas to our righteousness and to our spirituality. And, and for us here in this context, some of these things might feel a little bit far off or feel a little bit distant, but are they? Are they really that far off? Are they really that distant? Because even if the actual teachings themselves might be different, the food, you know, abstinence or, you know, the, the uh, withholding from marriage, maybe we're not listening to that teaching. But is it possible that there is teaching that is out there that is influencing the church? That's influencing you and me? And that teaching may not come in a form of a sermon. That teaching may not take place in a classroom, although it may. And it may be in the form of a servant, a sermon, rather. These things, these ideologies that are coming from our culture are constantly impacting us. Like we live in a world that constantly, everywhere you look, there are philosophies and ideologies and beliefs that are being thrown at us at a hundred miles an hour. In fact, in our context, because of the advent of the smartphone, we have more information coming our direction more frequently, more often than any other generation that's ever lived on planet earth before us. So do you think we should be on guard about the things that are coming our way and how those things are affecting us? Because there's teachings, there's beliefs, there's philosophies that want to usurp our belief and faith in Jesus and lead us to fall away from the truth, to lead us off course, to lead us off the path, to, to move our attention, our affection, our focus away from Jesus. And these ideologies come from everywhere. These ideologies come from Disney. These ideologies come from, uh, you know, politics. These ideologies come from TikTok and Instagram. They're, they call them influencers for a reason. You know what I'm saying? Ultimately, they're trying to influence us to buy something, right? Or to take part in something that would create advertising dollars for them. But the reality is that there is a philosophy that undergirds so much of what's going on in our culture that is trying to bring us down a certain path. And that path doesn't lead us to Jesus. And it's, it's true all over the map. There are uh, uh, cultural philosophies. There are political uh, philosophies on the Republican side, on the Democrat side, and somewhere in the middle that lead us away from Jesus. And we have to recognize that, that there is nothing that this world can offer us and serve us on a silver platter that can replace or enhance the beauty of the gospel because nothing holds a candle to it. And it's so important for us to recognize that all of us, we have teachers speaking into our lives. If you think about this from a biblical perspective, we all have rabbis, right? We all have people that are teaching us, that are leading us. 
And they're in many different pockets of our society. We've talked about that. And what I hope for all of us tonight to recognize is that when we have a rabbi that is not leading us towards Jesus, it's not putting us in a neutral place. It's leading us away from Jesus. And it's leading us to walk away from Jesus. That's what the ultimate intention and goal is. And what is the motivation that that comes from behind that? What is that? It's demonic. It is the plan of the enemy to knock you and to knock me off course so that he can steal, kill, and destroy and devour our lives. We have to be vigilant. We have to place ourselves squarely in the truth. The word of God that is given to us through the spirit of God, that is able to be thought through, wrestled through, considered, studied, navigated, talked through, prayed through, wrestled through within the community of God. Because otherwise we will be led in a place that does not lead us to life and freedom, but leads us to death and destruction. And the reality is because of our smartphones, because of the world that we live in, we have to fight extra hard to plant ourselves in the truth because the weeds are coming. (laughs) They're coming constantly. They're coming every day like a barrage. And we have to recognize that without being fully embedded in the beauty of the gospel and in the truth of the gospel, it will be so easy. It will be so easy for us to be uprooted. So whatever you hear tonight, hear this. There is nothing like the gospel. There's nothing more beautiful than the truth of who Jesus is. Don't let anything steal or rob that from you. If you're here tonight and you're like, "Eh, I'm hearing all this stuff about the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, and you're not sure who Jesus is or what he's about or what the good news of Jesus is, and you're curious, you want to know more, there's a lot of people here that would love to talk with you about that. Hang out, chat ask questions. We don't have answers. (laughs) We're we're not perfect. We don't have it all, but we can point you to the one who does. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that the truth of the gospel is real, that Jesus, you are alive and you are well, that though you came to this planet and we crucified you, that you didn't stay dead, but that you resurrected from the dead on the third day and now you live eternally. And that through you, we have hope. We have hope for salvation. We have hope for eternal life. We have hope for heaven and new creation. We have hope beyond anything this life can offer. Possessions, pleasures, experiences, foods, marital statuses, none of these things can hold a candle to who you are and to the eternal work of Jesus. So God, we look to you tonight. For all of us here who are followers of Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that this world is constantly begging us to to fix our eyes on things other than Jesus. God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to embed ourselves into the truth of your word. Help us to plant ourselves in the garden that leads us to life and freedom. 
Help us to embrace your word, your truth, your life, your goodness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. And that we would be people who would then bear fruit. That we would bear fruit of the spirit of God, of love and of joy and of peace and of patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Because we're squarely focused on the beauty of the gospel and that it will transform us from the inside out. God, we recognize that we have no hope apart from you. God, I pray for every person in this room that has not yet met Jesus as Lord and as Savior. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would draw them near to yourself and that they would surrender their lives to you, knowing that only you can satisfy and only you can fill. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.